Welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone, and Happy New Year. At the time of this recording, it is January 4th, 2021. Hey, for this episode, I want to give you a behind-the-scenes look at PeaceWorks University. PeaceWorks University is our online membership site. There are hundreds of hours of video content at PeaceWorks University, and if you enjoy the PeaceWorks podcast, then this is your most logical next step. Uh, Today's episode is going to be a masterclass from 2019 featuring a conversation between myself and Greg Wilson about domestic abuse policy and the church. I hope you enjoy uh, this conversation. And if you'd like to learn more about PeaceWorks University, be sure to visit us at chrismoles.org. Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. Okay, welcome back to the Masterclass, everyone. Uh, this month, we have a familiar face. Greg Wilson's back with us to talk a little bit about domestic abuse policy in your church and or denomination. Greg, welcome back to the Masterclass. Glad to be back with you, Chris. Awesome. Well, we're excited to dive right in. Uh, one of my most popular blogs was uh, a brief one that was written by Greg. Uh, called Why Your Church Needs a Domestic Abuse Policy. So I'm excited to have this conversation. So brother, let's dive right into um, to the obvious question. Why is it important for us to consider abuse policies, in particular spousal or domestic abuse policies in our church? Yeah, so I mean, the way we address that in our church, I go to a fairly large church where I'm a deacon of care um, and um, and what we, as we looked at this issue, we were like, why do we have a policy um, around child protection, child safety uh, that we've had for a long time? And honestly, that most churches, have, I don't very many churches, even churches a lot smaller uh, that don't have a, a church, a child safety policy and haven't had that for years and, and train their volunteers on it, right? And, and yet, uh, when I, we thought about this issue, domestic violence, domestic abuse in the church, um, not only did we not have a policy, but as we looked around, very few other churches had any kind of policy around this as well. And so, um, so um, I think that uh, for the same reasons that a church would want to um, have a policy around child safety so that we can... Um, teach our volunteers what the expectations are so the parents when they're dropping their kids off can know this is what we think about child safety and this is how we prioritize it. Um, in like manner, um, I think um, having a policy around this issue so that again, we can train our home group leaders, we can train our lay leaders, our elders um, on what we think uh, uh, this is so that we can be a safe place yeah. for um, uh, for victims and and not a safe place for per- perpetrators and for abuse to continue, um, it would be important to have a policy around this issue as well. 
Yeah, I really appreciate the, um, the thought that policy can inform our education in much the same yeah. way, vice versa. <clears throat> so what I tend to find, Greg, is I'll come in um, as like a holy hitman, right? I'll be invited in to be the guy who drops the heavy yeah. information and then I leave. Right. And they use that initial education, the elders will, to develop policies, right? And right. then I'll usually get a call months or a year later about consulting. Okay, now how do we take what we've written yeah. and then apply it to the church education? Right. So I, I see it uh, maybe like a information sandwich, right? You get that awareness, get everybody on the same page. You yeah. build your systems, right? And then you educate the people uh, at a larger level, maybe right. church-wide, which would be really helpful. So Absolutely. thinking that through, uh, brother, what are some of the, what are some of the consequences of, of not thinking through policy or even thinking through this topic? What are some of the, the glaring consequences that maybe you've encountered at your church or as you've consulted, you've seen in other churches of not engaging in policy. Yeah. So the big one is we're not on the same page. Right. And so whether that is um, uh, a couple that is in a a small group, for example, and their small group uh, leaders are encouraging them uh, just because they haven't had training and that they don't know any better. They haven't faced this before or encouraging them to get marriage counseling. Uh, Whereas the elders might say, um, you know, that, no, that's, we've had some, we've had Chris Moles come in and not a good thing uh, to do, or even of saying, well, there's nothing physically going on. So yeah, I mean, he berates her sometimes and he probably shouldn't do that, but like, I, I wouldn't call that abuse. And then another elder again says, you know, I've gotten some really good training or whatever. And, and I believe that, that this, uh, this emotional verbal abuse is abusive and actually can even be more damaging, more hurtful potentially than if he was hitting her, Um, you know? And so, um, and so it's the biggest thing is that we're all from, from lay leadership to staff to um, uh, elders and even um, the congregation at large being on the same page, just like we are with the child protection policy, right? So, you know, when you go in, um, at your church that you're going to need to, uh, check in. If you have a child, you're going to need to check that person in. The person who checked them in is going to have to be the person who picked them up. If those things don't match, um, then, uh, they're not going to let that person pick them up because they know that, you know, someone else could be trying to kidnap that child. We just, we just know that in the society that we live in, the fallen world that we live in, that there is a need for these kinds of things. And, and just the same with uh, domestic violence as with protecting children. Yeah. So, you know, we don't know what we don't know. Right. So uh, this is, this is really helpful. I think as we're presenting our case to our leaders at the church or the dom- denominational level for why we need to engage. Yeah. One of the things I've seen, and I think this is what uh, is playing out as you're talking is elders, leaders spending so much time, yeah. trying to decide what they're dealing with. That's right. Right. That in the, in the time that it takes them to wrestle with the problem and argue amongst themselves, people are left further damaged, further harmed. Interventions are delayed to the point that you're actually empowering the oppressor 
and uh, re-victimizing the victim. So is that is that kind of the one of the things that we're doing here through education, training, and policy making? We're streamlining our approach so that we're not delaying uh, the interventions. That's exactly right. Uh, you know, by having down on paper. Uh, this is what we have as a church have decided abuse is. This is what we as a church have decided um, that should be uh, done in response to abuse. And by training on that and letting people know, then, yeah, we're, we're not going to make some of the mistakes that we have all made, right, right. in the absence of this uh, policy. Yeah, that's really, that's really helpful. And so uh, one of the things we're working towards is not simply a document that protects us from some kind of problem, which sometimes happens, but we're actually looking for dialogue that equips and empowers us and at the same time protects the vulnerable. So I really like um, the the necessity of dialoguing as leaders of education and training. And, you know, like I said, you'll do the awareness training and then it's almost inevitable that you have to do a follow-up where you're equipping at a lower level. So who, when it comes to the church that you're at, Greg, who is involved? Where, what people are brought in at the training level as you're doing your policy making, And then we'll get to some elements of that in a minute. But who yeah. do you want to see equipped in the church to actually address uh, domestic abuse? Yeah, that's a great question. Before I answer that question, I sure. want to go back to something that you just said, and then I'll, I'll go to that, which is I didn't mention, but and primary reason But it is absolutely true to protect the church in the event that something does go wrong. Again, in the same way that a child protection policy would do that, right? So mm-hmm. if something goes wrong and the church does end up being not, but I would just imagine um, that, um, that having some kind of a policy in place and saying, this is what we, this is what we do in this, and then we follow that could be uh, more helpful than not in the same way that uh, it is with the child protection policy. So although we're not doing this to cover our, our rear end, so to speak in this, um, you know, we're doing it because we want to, we want to love people well and we right. want to protect the vulnerable and want to um, have everyone on the same page. Those are the, that's the overriding reason that we're doing it. Uh, but I do think that there's an aspect of it just helps us to have a policy in place in, in the event that something happened. So, um, you know, to your question about, so who is this policy for? Who are we bringing into these training environments? It's really, so So we at our church, um, we definitely, we're not going to, at least at this point, we haven't done anything congregation-wide to equip um, just our, our members on, um, hey, what it's like is, um, is, um, involved in domestic violence in one way or another. Um, we have made it a leadership training issue right. for our church. Um, and so that's, that's the way that we um, do it. So, so it's all of the leadership population. So elders, deacons, uh, pastors and ministers, uh, church staff. So we had a, in fact, you um, were, were, were involved in a, a training that we did for our church, our church staff. And so, and in fact, that's how we started this um, initiative, as you well remember, mm-hmm. is that um, we said, well, the first thing that we want to do is we want to get our entire church staff trained on this. So, so in that room where you and Leslie Vernick were, uh, when you guys came in and did that training, um, 
there were people who were pastors and ministers, and then there were people who were uh, bookkeepers and accountants and right. operation staff. Um, and, and we wanted everywhere, again, it's a large church, but we wanted everybody trained um, in this to begin with. And so we, we did kind of a, uh, you know, a, the biggest possible leadership population that we could do, which was our entire church staff. Um, and then, um, that we could do at one time anyway. Yeah. And, um, and then, and, and as part of that, there was a separate elder training that we did. So then we trained the elders separately and went into a little bit more depth, uh, with them. And then, um, and then subsequently we did training for specifically for our pastors and ministers at a deeper level. Um, and then beyond that, we began doing these awareness trainings that I continue to do in our church. Right. Uh, for uh, home group leaders. And again, it's a large church. So, so, you know, we're training home group leaders and recovery group leaders and, and basically lay leadership um, in groups of 30 to 50 at a time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but, but because of the fact that those, those populations turn over and you get new right. people in, that's going to be a continual process that we'll do, um, you know, until uh, the Lord takes us all home. Uh, <laughs> And, and, and the hope is that by training all of the leadership uh, populations, even, um, even the lay leaders um, uh, that are home group leaders or whatever, that that will filter down to the body at large. Yeah, so I think it's important to note, gang, as you're thinking through policy, one of the, one of the areas where I think you could jump the gun is to just begin to write without engaging the yep. leadership. And when Greg's talking about training, I think this is fair, Greg, we're talking about training and the dynamics and impact of abuse. You're really introducing people to the problem, the extent of the problem, much of what we talk about in PeaceWorks University. Um, So we're expanding the worldview and getting everybody on the same page so that these policy decisions can be made uh, with wisdom. And then Greg is continuing the dynamic and impact training because of the the turnover within the church. So we could even right. say, step one, if you really want to develop policy in your church or ministry, step one is to uh, involve some kind of educational component where you're training the leaders so that they're all at least understanding the dynamic and the impact of the problem before you put pen to paper. Fair? Absolutely. And, and let's bring in people who know you know, really know what they're talking about on this. So again, this isn't a, a plug for Chris. Well, I guess it is a plug for Chris, but, um, but it, it's, uh, uh, I mean, you know, what we did is we brought in Chris Moles and Leslie Vernick because we wanted someone, Chris has a background as a pastor. Leslie has a background as a counselor. Chris has a background in working with perpetrators. Leslie has a background in working with victims. Like we just want, and these are people who have written books you know, not that writing books makes you necessarily an expert, but these are people who, you know, have written on this, have studied, have been in the trenches actually doing this work for decades. And, and so we wanted to start there and say, let's let these people download what they know for us. Mm -hmm. And then let's start the, the dialogue that way. And Chris, to your point, I think that that's really important. Okay, good. So let's talk a little bit about elements, Greg, as we're, so let's say we've, we've gone the route that you're suggesting we've, we've trained. And in my experience, what, what tends to happen in the larger churches is um, from, from what I do is I'll come in for a weekend. It's usually six to 10 hours, depending upon the 
the um, availability of the folks and the commitment of the church. Um, and I'm usually doing mostly, like I say, dynamics and impact for that time. Yeah. Uh, but in some of the smaller churches, what I've, what I've done is community wide events, or I've done, you know, zoom calls like this with some leadership teams to help do some training. Sure. So that's the initial step. We're on board. What are some of the elements after we've really been exposed? And what I find too is it's exhausting. Yeah. I work with leaders. I tend to have leaders who it's like the matrix. They just took the whatever pill yeah. <laughs> opens right. up their eyes. And yeah. so there's going to be a season, I think, of just decompression and wrestling. That's why it's important, again, to do this as a preventative work, not a reactionary work. That's right. So um, once we've got through the decompression period, once I've left and Greg has to counsel all the leaders <laughs> through their oh. despair, what are right. some of the elements we're looking to add or, or develop in our policy? Yeah. So, you know, first of all, I think it's helpful to just have a, a agreed upon understanding of abuse and you can do that. Um, you know, I mean, there are a lot of great ones out there. Chris has got that um, in, in his book. Um, um, you know, uh, the, the Holcombs in their, in their book have, um, have uh, a definition of abuse. You can just take, you don't have to reinvent the wheel here. Uh, you can take whoever, uh, whoever you bring in a, and if you agree with their definition, adopt that. We felt like it was important to make sure that we adopted a definition that was, was robust in terms of its theological foundation. And so we say, uh, I say, uh, this is my definition that my church adopted, um, that it is, uh, that abuse is a desecration of the image of God. Um, so we just want to start with that foundation and you and I in a previous master class kind of worked out, mm -hmm. you know, what that is. Um, and then we talk about, um, that it is, um, through, uh, patterns of intentionally, uh, misusing power covertly or overtly in words or actions to gratify self. And then we break that down. And so we break down each one of those component parts, um, and say, this is what we're talking about. Um, with domestic abuse. The reason it's so important to us um, is because it's a desecration of the image of God, both um, in the perpetrator and in um, the, the, the victim of the abuse. And so, um, so I think starting with a definition like that, and then of course that's like really broad, right? And so then what do you mean by covert and overt? What do you mean by words and actions? And so then uh, for us, we got down into uh, some actual uh, things that we would call, um, you know, measures or uh, markers of abuse. And we borrowed there. So as you, we, we didn't reinvent the wheel. We borrowed uh, uh, John Henderson's work on, uh, on markers of relational um, abuse. Uh, we, we, we took some stuff that uh, Bethlehem had done. Uh, that the dark team uh, there had done and kind of refining that we added a few we're like well you know uh, specifically with spiritual abuse there wasn't a lot um, in either one of those so we kind of added our own with regard to spiritual abuse um, and then we were like so these are things that you can actually look for right so um, in verbal abuse in emotional abuse so 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 what does it look like on the ground, you know? And so, so we had kind of a 30,000 foot definition of this is what it is and this is why we don't like it and why God doesn't like it. And then, um, and then we got down to some very specific kind of measurable things. So 
in, in my mind, I use the term, and I use this in our awareness training at the church too, recognizing and then responding, right? And so everything that I'm talking about here in the policy is around recognizing it. Right. Um, what do we do so that we know that this is what this is, right? So that when, when the elders are talking uh, between themselves about a particular situation in the church, um, that they, they are both aligned with, you know, well, I didn't really think that this was abuse. Well, let's go back to our definition. Let's go yeah. back to the things that we've put down. I mean, we certainly are seeing some of these things, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. yes, we are. Well, then that's what this is. And so, again, it's really about, you know, having leadership all be on the same page by having a shared understanding of what it looks like. Yeah. I just recently had a conversation with a leader. Um, uh, they were walking their presbytery through. Um, yeah. And there was a lot of dissent. It was like we talked about at the beginning, right? So they're yeah. operating on a reaction. That's rather right. Than a prevention. So yeah. they're reacting to a case. And so there's a lot of disagreement. Yeah. And one of the things that I did, he had been speaking about the case. And within 10 minutes, I already had uh, seven of the nine components of the power and control wheel. Yeah. Listed out. Yeah. And um, so I, you know, said, Hey, you have a copy of the power control wheel. Uh, right. I was like, do you have a copy of my book? Yeah. Well, let's look at the tree and just yeah. walk him through. And I said, that's yeah. why we say pattern. Can yeah. you give me a, an event? So we had eight different events in 15 minutes. Yeah. Wow. Which he was then able to take back and say, Oh, I see. Now yeah. I see. That's right how to evaluate this. And he's like, well, we've got three events here and four events here. I was like, well, now you see the pattern, right? That's right. It's yeah. not one incident or not a series of incidents. It's a overarching problem. So right. that recognition is huge. And so, yeah, I think it's fantastic that in your written policy, you have those recognition pieces that go from, like you say, the 30,000 foot view to life on the street so that elders can, you know, put their heads together because really, that's what you need is a team of people looking at the case to yeah. really evaluate and recognize the problem. Yeah. What about the response phase? Is that the next element or are there other elements in our policy we need to be thinking about? No. So really, I mean, as part of that first recognizing aspect of it, we talk about the prevalence of it, right? So we want to, we use some of the statistics uh, in our in our policy. So we actually say, um, you know, one in four men, one in seven women will experience domestic abuse in their lifetimes. So you think about our, or I'm sorry. Yeah. One in, one in, uh, four women. <laughs> um, um, thank you for that. Uh, we'll, we'll experience domestic abuse in our lifetime. Right. And so, um, so if you're looking, if you're sitting in the church on Sunday morning and you're thinking one in four women, right. And so let's just look around, you know, why do we think that we're so special that, you know, we're going to be way outside that? I mean, maybe because we're believers, you know, there's, there's a little bit of a difference. Uh, we, we've found that, you know, not always, but, but maybe there's a little bit of a difference. But still, I mean, if we're sitting in a church that's full of people and we're saying one in four women have experienced this in their lifetime, one in seven men, and we look around, then A, it's a, it's a bigger problem than we probably want to admit. And so even just raising the level of awareness to, to where when, when someone knows those statistics and they hear someone say, um, yeah, you know, uh, me and my husband like really got into it last night, you know, that they at least know, what do you mean by got into it? Right? <laughs> you know, yeah. and I mean, it could be very innocent. It could be, they might not have meant anything like that at all, but at least knowing the prevalence, then you ask those kinds of questions, right? 
So, um, so that's, uh, that's one thing. And then what we talked about in terms of the definition and the markers and all that, that's recognizing. And then we get into, so what do you do about it? Right. Yeah. And so, you know, so we have statements like I've got it here in front of me. So we have statements like, um, you know, we will not work to investigate charges of abuse, but we'll refer both the abused person and the perpetrator to competent professional counselors. So we just have a statement where we say, you know, it's not our job to try to rec- to, to try to investigate this. Yeah. You know, uh, can, I, can I put a pin in that for a second, Greg, and ask you yeah. a question? Because I, yeah. I really appreciate that, that statement. But for a lot of our students and a lot of people within the biblical counseling world, yeah. um, that's a prickly statement. And I yeah. appreciate it. Talk us through the rationale. Why is it so important to have relationships with experienced, competent people for that, for that reason? Yeah, because... Um, I think sometimes, number one, I think the church gets in way over its head in terms of what God has called us to do and to be, right? So God has called us to make disciples, um, and um, and we can get way off of that mission statement by getting into, by getting in ourselves into situations related to care that are just well beyond our expertise, right? And so um, where we're trying to uh, advise a perpetrator, for example, on, on, you know, just why don't you take an anger management class? That might really be helpful, right? We're trying to advise a perpetrator on, um, you know, if you just be nicer to her, like just try to be nice to her when you're around her and, and not realizing that someone like me who as a professional counselor does a lot of work with perpetrators would be. So in, in telling him to be, try to just be nicer in telling him to take an anger management class, actually you're just making him a nicer abusive person. Right. Right. Um, And so, and that's not, and that's not really helpful. And in fact, you're, you're actually, he's actually going more underground, more manipulative um, in terms of his abuse and, and what he does. Right. Um, and the wife knows that, but, but she doesn't have language maybe even to describe to people in the church that that's actually what's happening. Yeah. And so, and then when you're, you know, talking to a woman and, and the counsel is things like, well, you know, if, if you would, uh, try to submit to him better, if you would try to serve him better, which again is just actually playing into abuse or counsel that says, um, you know, maybe you guys should go see a marriage counselor or something right. like that. So again, just saying that this isn't our, uh, this isn't what we are primarily trained to do. And so, um, and the whole idea of investigation, even, I mean, we use that language, you know, specifically because who are we as an elder or a pastor or even a lay leader in the church, however well we know this family one thing that we know for sure is that the two people that are in the marriage know what's going on more than uh, more than uh, they know what's happening behind closed doors. Right. right? So that victim is, is, is saying, why do you need to, when I'm telling you that I feel like this is going on, why do you feel like you need to conduct your own investigation? Um, or, or are you actually saying that you know better? And if I'm saying that he's manipulative and controlling, um, then why wouldn't you think that when he goes to church of all places and he's having a conversation with his friend who's an elder or his friend who's yeah. a pastor or his friend who's a lay leader, that he might be a little bit manip- manipulative and controlling yeah. even to you and that he yeah. might actually be manipulating you. And so we just say it's not our job to investigate. Yeah, uh, I, I really like that. And um, I want to encourage our folks. I think that's for me, one of our passions is seeing more and more uh, competent and skilled people, people helpers, 
uh, specialize in this area so that we have more folks who are equipped to do this work. Um, you know, one thing I was thinking about the other day, Greg, I was talking with a pastor. A lot of times our pastoral care is, is informal in that, hey, let's meet for breakfast. Let's meet for coffee. We get yeah. a good picture of what's happening. And it's good care. I'm not saying that that's bad care. It's necessary right. care. Uh, but in particular with perpetrator work, it has to be formalized. That's right. And that's yeah. what's really tricky sometimes is you you can't be both the friend and the accountability partner. I even tell my guys in group, and I think you've heard me say this, my local guys, I won't be your pastor while I'm you're in group. That's right. I mean, if you if you're interested in the faith and maybe you've been away from the Lord, but you really want to reconnect, I will give you a list of churches. I'll help you find a shepherd. I just can't be both at this right. point. Yeah. Because it's too big of a conflict and too big of a temptation for you, right? To try to manipulate me. Yeah. That's uh, right. You know, that's it's a role. As I a church, right. As a church, we need to stick to what we do best and what we do best. Um, I, I pray is what the Lord has uh, commanded <laughs> us to do, right? Is to, uh, is to make disciples. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so to do the work of evangelism, to do the work of discipleship, to, um, to yes, do the work of care, right? Mm -hmm. So pastoral care and shepherding is definitely part of that. Um, but to also know where what we're talking about when we talk about something like abuse is just way more complex and multi-layered um, than our training maybe in seminary where right. we've had one you know, pastoral counseling course or whatever, or if you're an elder, you haven't even, you haven't even had that. Right. Um, you know, we're, our training just is not, is not in that. Yeah. So sharing the responsibility is a big part of this. And we, our group here, PeaceWorks Youth Students, you guys know yeah. the emphasis we place on teams, you know, and so we even said recently about, he gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers that all of us are here right. to, to see maturity happen in the church. So I think that's a really good point. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Let me pull the pen back out okay. of the referral piece. What other responses may we be considering in our abuse policy? Well, so basically in terms of response, we, we put three different categories. So like what I was just reading um, uh, from there is just a bullet point that's an example of something that we say in terms of um, uh, the initial care in abuse, which is victim care, right? And so we, we break it down into three stages once a discovery or dis disclosure is um, brought up in terms of response. And those three stages um, are um, initially caring for the victim, uh, once this has either been discovered through a conversation that happened in home group, or mm -hmm. it's actually just been brought to the church where a victim has finally gotten to the place of saying, Hey, I need help. Um, you know, this is actually going on in my marriage. Um, then we initially turn our attention to, um, the victim and our policy says, you know, that we're going to listen to her and we're going to believe her initially. Um, you know, that, that we're going to, we're not going to, to say, well, are you, are you sure that that's what this is? We're just we're going to believe her again, based on what we were just saying, knowing she's in the marriage and I'm, I'm not in the marriage. And I, I certainly know that if abuse is going on, uh, he's hiding that, right? Like he doesn't, he's not, in most cases, he's not doing that publicly. Right. Uh, he's not going to be doing that in the church foyer. That's where he's going to be putting on, you know, a much uh, better uh, face. And so, um, and so, um, uh, so, so we're going to believe her, 
uh, we're going to uh, help her get the professional care that we feel like uh, she needs. We're going to offer to help in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to help her create a safety plan or, um, or through that with that professional help her create a safety plan, but somehow safety is going to be very preeminent at that point. Uh, do you need to get out of the house? If you need to get out of the house, how can we help you with that? Uh, you know, those kinds of things that that's what we're going to do to enter in, uh, to love and care, uh, for her. And we're not going to have a conversation with the victim, right? That's why uh, with the perpetrator, mm-hmm. we're not going to have a conversation with the perpetrator yet until she's ready for us to do that. Right. right. And so that's why, you know, in, in stage one, we're just talking about how we're going to come alongside this victim and make sure that safety is established and so forth. And then we turn our attention to while Vic, while uh, victim care is still going on, mm-hmm. then we enter into um, how we're going to work to correct the perpetrator, right? Yeah. Because obviously this is correction, not care. It's a, just a different type of care. And yeah. in, in my understanding of care, right? So in my understanding of care, there's uh, the, the care that you do where someone is uh, suffering and you come alongside them and then there's correction, which is what you do when someone is in sin. Right. And we're going to um, uh, begin whatever our process of church discipline is at that point. Right. Yeah, it's almost that balance of, uh, was it pericoleo and nutheteo? That's right. The coming alongside and then also putting into practice the admonishment piece. And Absolutely. So I Absolutely. think of, uh, was it First Thessalonians 5, right? Admonish right. the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Patient with everybody. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, uh, and so that's what we, that's, that's the way that we do that. I use the language. We use the language in our policy uh, that we don't confront the perpetrator without the advice and consent of the victim. Right. And so we use that language that we see in the Senate. If you follow government, right. That that's the role of the Senate is advice and consent. Uh, we use that same kind of language. Um, I'm going to want not only the victim's um, consent to now have a conversation with the perpetrator, but I am also going to want her advice, right? So I'm, we're going to say, hey, we're going to, we're, we, we have established safety. We know that you're in a good place. You're getting good care and good counsel. Uh, now we would like to come alongside and um, discipline, you know, in, in, loving, in a loving fashion, uh, the perpetrator. Mm-hmm. Is that okay? Yes or no? No, I don't quite feel safe enough for you guys to do that yet. Okay, then we'll respect that. Uh, but even if it's a yes, yes, I, I'm, I'm in a good place. I'm in a safe place. Please have a conversation with him. Then, okay, these are the things that we're thinking about talking to him about. Um, uh, you know, what, what advice do you have on our approach with that? Is there anything on this list that you're like, hey, why don't you do one, two, and five right now and skip three and four? <laughs> Uh, just for now, and then we'll see how he responds to one, two, and five, and then come back to three and four. So again, we just want to have her advice and her consent in terms of how we uh, do that. And then with him, it's excuse me, it's going to be very much be a process of education. Mm-hmm. Um, so we may invite him into a uh, better intervention program that we know. We may say, hey, there's a uh, 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 better intervention program um, uh, here in um, Denton County happens to be the county where, where we're at. Um, it's really good. And, um, and so we're going to um, ask you to go and uh, participate in this. You and I have a curriculum that we're uh, working on 
uh, called Men of Peace. We're trying to kind of have more of a gospel-centered uh, type of program um, around that um, um, that we can actually do in the church. Mm-hmm. But whatever it is that we're going to invite them into some kind of an education, like you need to understand what's going on. And we're actually going to see that as um, a fruit of repentance, right? Yeah. So if the man humbles himself and he's willing to go and do that, then we're going to say that's a really good sign. If the man uh, pushes back and says, I don't need to be, and that's called batter intervention. I'm just verbally abusive. Right. You know, uh, most of the other people in that, from my understanding, are court ordered, and I, no no court has asked me to go into something like that, so I'm not going to do it, right? Then again, we know kind of what we're dealing with here, right? We know someone who's not uh, willing to humble themselves and, um, and enter in. But again, even there, Chris, as we talked about earlier, the church is not going to do work that the church is not equipped to do. So right. we're, we don't, we don't have a problem at all. And I know you do this, you do better intervention um, there in West Virginia. Like we have no problem at all sending someone to a secular bit program yeah. Um, yeah. and, and just saying, Hey, you know, I mean, they're going to talk about the power and control wheel. They're going to talk about some of the dynamics uh, of abuse. And, and we're hoping that that's going to open your eyes and make yeah. you aware to that. And what we're looking for there in that whole process of coming alongside, you'll also walk, walk with someone in the church who's been trained right, right. Uh, in this. And so uh, while he's in that better intervention program or whatever kind of secular help he's getting, he'll also be walking with someone who loves Jesus and loves the gospel and is uh, asking him good questions about, so what are you learning? What did y'all talk about last week? And how can we put that into, into practice? And the, at this point, probably limited contact, if, if contact at all, that you have with your um, with your spouse or with your partner because you're likely separated at this point, right? right. Uh, but even in whatever kind of limited contact that you have, how can we put that into play, or how can we put that into into practice just at work and in other settings, yeah. other relational settings that you're in uh, first before we even introduce that? So again, it, as you know, there's lots of different ways that that can uh, that that can play out. But ultimately, we're looking for repentance there. Like the goal there. So the goal with the woman is a certain amount of healing from the trauma that mm-hmm. she has endured at having been abused for maybe years or decades by this person in sometimes in really covert ways, which as I said, is right. uh, often victims have told both of us, I would honestly have rather that he was being physically violent with yeah. me, right? Yeah. Uh, because uh, emotional and psychological abuse over a period of decades is very traumatic. Um, so the goal with her is, is healing uh, beginning that healing process uh, through trauma counseling, the goal with him is repentance. Right. Um, and then and only then that third stage I'll get to, which is you and I know is like way out in the future. Um, and we always make that very clear, uh, if at all. In fact, actually the language that we use is marriage reconciliation, if possible. Um, and so that's the, that's the language that we yeah. use for that third step, which is, Yes, if she has experienced enough healing that uh, her counselor and, and her believe that now this is a wise step, and if uh, and only if he has uh, demonstrated repentance of his behaviors, then we can get to that third step, which, praise the Lord, we've actually seen, and I know you've seen in some situations too, mm-hmm. uh, which is marriage reconciliation. This is the, the angst that you and I have as believers in this uh, work is that, uh, all of the secular material out there is going to say that he has a personality disorder. There is no way that he can ever change. Uh, and, and honestly, I, I mean, I will put a pin in this and just say 
there's a reason why they say that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, change is actually extremely unlikely. It actually has not happened in most cases, sadly. Yeah. Um, and so it, it is important to just recognize like there's a reason that people who have been trained and done this work for years and years and years say he's probably never going to change. But we also know that, that God can do anything. and We have seen the hearts of men change. And so when that happens, and again, it's rare. And in our policy, we say, if possible, because we know that it may not be possible, um, that, that we would like to see the marriage reconciled if possible. And, and reconciliation, let me just also quickly say this, it may not mean as, um, when we're talking about reconciliation, that they're actually back in the same house and that they right. don't get divorced. Reconciliation may actually look um, at, on the horizontal level. Um, it may actually just look like because they've got small children and they right. did have to get a divorce because of this, that at least they can be um, friends in that, that they can be, that they can be collegial with each other. Yep. That there's not going to be still covert manipulative behavior going on, even when they're, you know, um, exchanging the kids or when they're having a conversation about uh, their, their son's uh, bad grade that he got and, and, and what action they're going to try to take as co-parents in that situation. Right. Um, and so, and then primarily the reconciliation though is to the Lord, right? And so um, under our, under marriage reconciliation, we talk about to the Lord first, reconciliation to the Lord first. Um, and then um, again, if God is kind um, and the spirit um, allows this to happen, then uh, maybe there can be some level of reconciliation with each other, even if they don't stay married. Yeah. Uh, and so, and so that's in general, like it, as 30,000 feet, like that's the, um, that's what we talk about in terms of response. Yeah. I appreciate too, that when we're talking about policy and I think this is, I'm pretty sure this is what you're saying. Policies are goals, not gods. They're, right. they're, they're standards that we're setting, not, systems that we have to follow. In fact, I think that's one of the reasons why um, domestic abuse policy has kind of grown out of your experience is it's very easy uh, in the church and especially in the large church, I think for the machinery of the system to chew people up. And it's important to have wise uh, documentation, wise policy that gives your leaderships an opportunity to intervene and use wisdom. So when we're talking about the recognition phase, I think we're all getting on the same page, which yeah, is that's right. in the response phase, we're all putting our heads together to think what's the best next step yeah. for this person and this person. Am yeah. I on the right page there? Absolutely. Absolutely. We're talking about wisdom and um, you know, in our church, when we've had this conversation about policy and protocol, um, one of the things that we have been very honest before our staff, before our lay leaders um, in saying is, you know, even when we talk about like a policy and a protocol, we have to be careful that underneath the policy and the protocol, we're talking about a person, right? Um, in fact, in this case, in, in relational abuse, we're talking about two people um, made in the image of God. Um, and so, we don't want to lose sight of the fact that there are people um, hurting people here that, that our policy and protocol is not designed so that we would te- treat them transactionally. So that we would say, well, the next step in the policy is we do this, you know, yeah. uh, but rather that that policy and that protocol 
would be um, a way of, of knowing and having a shared understanding as church leadership about what wisdom looks like. Yeah. You know, what is wisdom in this situation? Very good. Well, Greg, thanks a lot for walking us through that. I'll tell you what I'm going to do, team, is I'm going to include in this masterclass our blog posts in the past on policy. So you can just kind of wrap your head around that a little bit and chew on it a little. And then I, I want to revisit this sometime in the future, buddy. And I don't know when that's going to be. It. I think let's it'd be it. helpful. Um, I'm just, let's just throw it out there. We're recording that way. It'll All right. be accountable. Accountability. I, I think this would be a good mini course uh, sometime in the future for yeah. PeaceWorks University to have an extended conversation and maybe give some templates uh, to get Fantastic. people started. What do you think? I think that'd be great. Love to help with that. All right. Well, let's uh, keep that in mind, gang. And you guys hold us accountable to that in particular. Right. because you, you guys don't have contact with Greg, but <laughs> hold me accountable to it. All right. Well, thanks again, Greg. We really appreciate all of your help and uh, thank you guys for, for joining us and we'll see you uh, in the membership.